it's the next level. <laughs> Hello? Somebody out there? <laughs> It's the video game that lets you pretend you're E.T., running away from secret agents, falling into danger, finding a phone to call home, and discovering the best thing on Earth, a friend. E.T., only from Atari. Hey, kids. It's another episode. Another gateway to Halloween episode. Number four, I believe? Although it's the second episode I'll be doing with a post credit scene. Remember last week... I wanted to talk about Halloween ends, so I saved it for the end of the episode. Well, this week, I got to do that again. This week, um, you know that movie. Everyone's talking about it lately, about how it's, it's making them puke, and they're fainting in the theaters, and there's even reports now of people crying when they saw this movie. I'm talking about Terrifier 2. Yeah, I've seen it now. I know what is in this movie. And I will offer my commentary on it at the end of this episode. So if you want to stick around, wait till, you know, I'm done everything else. So you can hear what my thoughts were on the movie. Hey, I hope you do. But this week, though, what are we reviewing this week? Hmm. Well, it goes something like this. From the Next Level Network of Podcasts and Studio Zero. Hey, kids. I even took a shower for this week's episode. (laughs) whatever that means i don't know everyone welcome back to what lurks lurks behind podcast Podcast zero Zero. and i'm your host post-mortem paul okay so this week's featured review for episode 133 we're gonna focus on a movie that how do I talk about this? I, you know what I'm going to talk about? I'm going to talk about this because this is a really cool thing. And I actually sort of elaborate on it as well in the review. But the 20th anniversary, there was a re-release for this film. And the director, well, when they were approaching the, you know, the, the re-release, they were like, what can we do? This and that. And he did that thing where they, you know... They changed some scenes, they changed some dialogue, they added some digital enhancements. And then people saw it, and it was released on DVD, and people were like, we don't want this. So what did the studio do when, you know, there was the backlash of, we didn't want this? Well, the studio listened. Yeah, take that, Lucas. Star Wars special editions. Everyone's been waiting for the theatrical versions to come back. That's all people wanted. We didn't need to alter anything. Well, with this movie and this director and this studio, they listened. This week, from director Steven Spielberg, the classic tale of friendship and loyalty. We're talking about E.T., the extraterrestrial. And yes, I know, it's not a horror movie. But it's a Halloween movie. So it fits. And I'm talking about it this week. But first. Okay, so I'll be talking about Terrifier 2 later. Which is all over the top gore, special effects. 
not much of a cerebral kind of movie. But I also watched this other one where it was like completely night and day from that. It was like this full character study of a girl who slowly goes mad. It's a 2022 flick known as Pearl. Yeah, I watched that. Um, the Ty West flick it's supposed to be a prequel to X. I didn't mind X. I'll say that. I thought it was a good movie. I didn't understand all the craze and the hype behind it, though. Like, it's it's a movie. It was a good movie, but not a great movie. Now, with Pearl, it's definitely better than X, in my opinion. I think I think it's super. I think it, you know, it, it went a little bit further. It superseded the original, but it's still not a great movie. It's good. I liked it. I enjoyed it. But I wouldn't say it's a great movie. However, there is one part of the movie that is great. And that's the performance put on by Mia Goth. As Pearl. She puts on an acting clinic and then some in this movie. It is such a pleasure to watch. And if you've seen this movie... I'm pretty sure most of you have because I this one was one I got to a bit later, obviously. Many of you saw this in the theaters. You saw it when it first was released digitally. I believe it was released legally digitally. I don't know. Anyways, whatever. I saw it finally. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. But if you've seen this movie, you will know what I'm talking about when I say there is a five-minute sequence in this movie where she puts on a lifetime achievement type of performance that is just brilliant. Um, I was glued to the screen watching this monologue. We'll call it that. That's basically what it was. It was a monologue. But the emotion and you're watching it with such believability because she is just nailing it. I mean, matter of fact, like the whole third act, honestly, in this film, she just crushes it. But it's that one monologue scene that is just perfection. The cinematography, the lighting, the wardrobe, the score, all of that is done really well. I mean, it's a good movie. Like I said, it's a, it's a good movie. It's not a bad movie. But it was one of those where I was like, it's not a great movie. But her performance is a 10 out of 10. Like, And I'm talking about throughout the whole movie, but especially within the third act, when we see the result of everything that happened to her. And what it has formed Pearl into was just so well done. The movie itself for me, honestly, when it was all said and done, I was about, I was thinking, you know, 6.5. It's, again, not a bad movie. I just don't think it's great. But when we're talking about Mia Goth, like I said, 10 out of 10. Another movie that was kind of like that for me was Phenomena, years ago. Good movie. I enjoyed it. But it was the performances of the actors that I liked more about that. Well, here's the thing. You're wondering why I'm bringing up Phenomena? 
Because apparently there's an Italian studio known as Titanus. They're uh, they're rebooting themselves, so to speak. They're going to be doing new things in film. They want to they want to revitalize their library and do something new and fresh. Fresh apparently being they want to do a sequel. To the 1985 flick from Dario Argento, they want to do Phenomena. A sequel, nonetheless. A sequel. And they're saying it will be an American film with a U.S. director and U.S. and international talents. So we're going to, you know, have, you know, cast from all around the world. I'm fine with this. This is fine. I don't care. But it will take the form of a present-day sequel rather than a remake. And I see this and I'm like, I really don't know how I feel about this right now. (laughs) I'm not upset about it, but I'm not jumping at the bit on it either. If I see Jennifer Connelly's name attached to it, maybe then I sort of go, "Hmm? okay, I'm kind of interested. But at the moment right now, I'm just like... Do we really need that? Phenomena itself, in its own right, has, you know, it's helped inspire and it's helped, you know, affect many films that have come after it and whatnot. And, I mean, Jennifer Connelly's career obviously, you know, took off and whatnot. There's all that. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I put this out there not because I had anything really to say on it other than I really don't know how I feel about it. And maybe... Maybe someone has an opinion on it that I wouldn't mind hearing because right now I'm like almost apathetic. And after last week's episode of doing something wicked this way comes and talking with people after it, I learned a lot of things after the fact. I learned about, you know, different things with the soundtrack. I learned about different things with the actors and stuff like that. It was kind of cool talking with different people. And also I should correct myself. Last week, I said something Wicked This Way Comes only was released on VHS and DVD. It was brought to my attention that, no, it did have a Blu-ray release as well. It's one of those, like, Disney Club kind of releases, so it's very hard to find. But it does exist on Blu-ray. So I need to take that part back from last week because it was like, when it was brought to my attention. And, you know, it's funny because I even remember my friend buying it. And, you know, he was saying to me, he's like, well, that's why I, you know, I had to get it at like a convention and stuff like that. And I was like, shoot, I totally forgot. (laughs) So, yes, something wicked this way comes is on Blu-ray. Back to Phenomena, though. I really, I, I don't know how I feel at the moment. I'm curious to see what happens. We have no release date. We have no nothing right now we don't even have a storyline or anything it's just it was announced this week and one of those things where it was announced and i was like did i read that right oh that is happening eh Alrighty then uh let's see what else happened recently well something i'm gonna just plug quickly but i'm not gonna talk about it this week because i'm still sort of fresh into it new video game was released and you're like, oh, what horror game did he buy? No, I it's Gotham Knights. <laughs> but the reason why I bring it up is because my love of social media, right? Um, there was a lot of complaining about that game before it came out. And this was something that really 
actually put a smile on my face was seeing how those complaints dwindled after the game was released. Yes, I know. It's 30 frames per second on a next-gen console, and people were like, this is blasphemy. If it's going to be on next-gen, it needs to be 6,000 frames per second, or I won't play this game. Okay. And, you know, it was, and people were complaining, oh, well, what's a Batman game without Batman? Well, you watch that opening cinematic, like, scene (laughs) when they show why there's no Batman in this movie, or this game, sorry, uh, you will shut up. It's some of the best Batmaning I've ever seen in anything (laughs) in my life. And this is including the animated series, like... They really outdid themselves with their opening cinematic scene that leads into the game. I won't talk about it right now. That will be another day. But WB Games Montreal did good with this one, and I'm I'm very I'm still very new to it. I I have played as all four characters, but I think I like Batgirl and Nightwing the best. Robin's kind of cool too. Not a fan of Red Hood, but I never have been so. It's not it's not me like nitpicking at what you know W Games Montreal did with the character. The character's the character. They did what they should have with Red Hood. It just I don't like the character. Never have. Um But I will say it's from what I've played so far, it's pretty fun. And I was seeing a lot of that after the game was released, so I was like, alright, that's cool. The other thing that obviously was going to get lots of love just this past weekend, Joe Bob's Haunted Halloween Hangout uh, happened this past weekend on Shudder. It's already on demand, so they made sh- they made good on their word on that. They said Sunday morning it'll be on demand. It was there, so that's good. Um, two films, I'll just quickly recap it. Two films they did, Elvira's Haunted Hills with guest Cassandra Peterson, other, a.k.a. Elvira, um, but she was as herself in the interview segments and whatnot. And then they did the 1991 flick Popcorn, which was, uh, I have it. I love the movie. I think it's a lot of fun and whatnot. And guest Jill Sholin was on. Um, it was another fine outing. For This is their fourth Halloween special. And it was a lot of fun to watch, especially the first film. Uh, for me personally, that was my highlight. I know there were some people, I saw a lot of comments on different social media uh, formats and whatnot saying they really enjoyed seeing Jill Sholin. I'm not going to lie. She was a lot of fun to watch and to listen to, but it was all about seeing two legendary icons on the screen at the same time. Yeah. I'm talking about Ernie and Yuki. Um, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, Joe Bob and Elvira just seeing, I know she was as herself as Cassandra Peterson, but just having the two of them talking back and forth was something else um it's not it's not something you see often and it was it was exactly as i hoped it would be it was it was fun it was very informative i mean some things yeah she's talking about things that i've read in books and i know and stuff but then there's the cool things that i didn't know and i'm like oh that's awesome and not to mention we had elvira's haunted hills which in my opinion and i know a lot of people are like blasphemy but I like Haunted Hills better than I did Mistress of the Dark just because I knew the background to Haunted Hills and I was like, eh, I kind of like it a little bit more. Plus, I think it's a little bit more adult 
but I knew they were allowed to get away with a little bit more when they did that film and whatnot. So anyways, it is what it is. It was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, It ran about five and a half hours. Typical last drive-in marathon. And it was a good way to kick off my Halloween season because I don't have to go back to work now till November. So (laughs) it was like a nice way to kick off my vacation. But now, because I have a lot to talk about with this next film, we're going to go back to 1982. Back to a time when Kathleen Kennedy was just beginning to get her feet wet in showbiz. When Empire Strikes Back had just been in the theaters two years before, and Return of the Jedi hadn't even been released yet. Think about that. And this week's movie also, this is kind of the hurtful part, but it is what it is, is part of the reason why the thing from John Carpenter didn't hit the way the studio hoped it would. Because everyone was all about this loving alien, and then the thing comes out, and it's all about gore and torment, and yeah, it didn't hit with the fans, or the audiences, I should say, back in 1982. Thank God the thing got itself a beautiful little cult following. Because it's almost a perfect movie. Um, But yeah, we will do the trailer timeout. And when we return, E.T., the extraterrestrial. And you're like, I can't believe he's doing this movie. (laughs) Wait till you see what next week's movie is. In 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981... He directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T., the Extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, the fear. The discovery. The friendship. I'm keeping him. The secret. The love. The warning. The signal. The mystery. The danger. The intrusion. The wonderment, the enchantment, the hope, the connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. All right, welcome back, everyone, from that magnificent... No, what am I kidding? That's a bland trailer. <laughs> that is not good. Um, kind of interesting. You know, great movie. I mean, we're talking a masterpiece here, and the trailer is boring. I mean, I guess, obviously, if you have visuals and whatnot, maybe. I, I No, I, it's weird because, you know, not just, what, not too long ago, we had people complaining about like the Munsters trailer and you know, like 
it's interesting because I see people will complain about trailers. Okay, whatever. I mean, trailers should get you excited, right? Hellraiser was a perfect example, a 2022 release. You know, people saw that trailer and all of a sudden a lot of the complaints started to disappear. Uh, there were still some, obviously, but it did seem like more people were gravitating towards the film. And by today's standards, I don't know, I'm, I, I watched this E.T. trailer, you know, before doing the episode and whatnot, and I was like, wow, that's a boring trailer. I actually had toyed with the idea of putting the Atari commercial here <laughs> as the break, but I did want to open the show with that just because everybody loves that Atari game so much. <laughs> I still have mine. Um, anyways... Let's talk about this movie, okay? Let's forget about the trailer. Trailer's not important. What's important is the movie. What's important is is that this is E.T., the extraterrestrial. Probably one of the biggest movies in my time of living. Maybe. There's been others. But <laughs> for me personally, this is one that affected me quite a bit. Um, it was released June 11th, 1982, but it did have... I guess you would call it the world premiere sort of idea at the Cannes Festival, uh, May 26, 1982. Uh, but in terms of North America, it was June 11th, 1982. was when we were all allowed to take in this experience that was directed by Mr. Steven Spielberg. Yeah, big name. I've talked about him on this show before, way back. But yeah, so... Here's the thing about Steven Spielberg. One of his first directing gigs, actually, was working on the pilot for the TV series Night Gallery that was hosted by Rod Serling. It's a series that's sort of come back into my present world because usually, like, when I'm watching college football on Saturdays, it's also airing on Comet TV. They do a lot of the reruns and stuff like that. So usually at commercial break when, you know... when Michigan's winning, because they've been doing a lot of that this year. Um, I'll go to commercial, like like at the commercial break, I'll go to Comet TV, and I'll watch a little bit of Night Gallery and whatnot, and it's been kind of nice to go back and watch that show, because I really don't remember much of it. I remember watching it when I was young, but it, it's not something that I think about a lot. So now I also know, though, that the pilot was you know, done by Steven Spielberg, so it's like, hmm... Now I really want to watch this show again, at least the pilot anyways, to go back and really refresh my memory. Um, but anyways, after Night Gallery, I mean, it was the summer of 1974 where Steven Spielberg finally made his huge mark um, that was only followed by so many massive hits after. And of course, it, it all started with The Sugarland Express, starring Goldie Hawn, and you're like... Wait a minute, that's not the movie I think of. And it's like, yeah, I know, 1975, he gave us Jaws. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it, I'm well aware of it. Um, that one definitely did not sink. And Steven Spielberg definitely needed a bigger boat for all the hits that were going to follow Jaws. Like, I mean, we are talking Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Raiders of the Lost Ark, obviously E.T., Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Hook, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report, War of the Worlds, 
And, and, and by the way, any of these that had sequels, he was usually a part of that as well. And then the film that I was talking about earlier, the one from way back in 2018, when I think it was episode 11 I did for the show, when I talked about Ready Player One. He was behind that. Uh, and that's okay. That's just directing credits. That's not even including all the producing credits as well. Like he has a total of 182 of them and it's still going. And I mean, that's a list that includes some of my favorites like Poltergeist, Gremlins, The Goonies, Back to the Future and its sequels. The Money Pit, Inner Space, Batteries Not Included, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Arachnophobia, Cape Fear, Tiny Toons Adventures, Casper, uh, Deep Impact, Men in Black, Twister, The Haunting, Super 8, Terra Nova. I could go on forever. This man has done a lot of stuff that I have taken in over the years. I have consumed this stuff, and I love it. Undeniably, Steven Spielberg is one of the greatest filmmakers we've ever been fortunate enough to experience in the last five decades, at least. Um, and who knows what the future is going to bring. He's still doing things. So, I mean, sky's the limit right now. And that sky, he raised it <laughs> with so many of those movies. So, I mean, it, it just, wow. Like, kudos to him. The producers for this film were Mr. Steven Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy. Kathleen, that's a name lately that sometimes people like to criticize because of something she's attached to these days but she actually began producing films uh, it all started with poltergeist uh, she was the associate producer on that one and then et was the big one for her it was the one that she began making the big decisions for um and that's something she admitted like scared her quite a bit uh, there's documentaries on many of the blu-ray releases and dvd releases and whatnot and she's even gone on record as saying like E.T. was the one that she would, you know, she suffered anxiety every night. She was stressed out and stuff because she knew the decisions she made could really impact that movie. Um, and then since then, I mean, she's hiked up quite the resume herself with a slew of hits. Um, many of the same titles as Steven. Um, she, they've worked together quite a bit. But it's also worth noting that around 2015 was when her name started to become synonymous with the Star Wars brand. And that is where some of the criticisms came. People have sort of blamed her for things they didn't like about the Star Wars films. I mean, she's pretty much produced almost all the films, to my knowledge. I mean, we're talking Episode 7, Force Awakens. She did Rogue One, Last Jedi, Solo, The Rise of Skywalker, Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Andor, and she's attached to the upcoming Ahsoka series, and basically most of what will come in the future for the Star Wars brand. I mean, she... She's sort of taken on those reins as being like the head producer for it. Whether or not you like it, well, that's all a matter of opinion, but she's definitely been involved with some of the biggest names, biggest projects and whatnot. So she knows what she's doing. I mean, again, whether or not we like what we see, well, that's a matter of opinion. But Kathleen has definitely made her... Uh, she's had a very successful career let's put it that way 
E.T. was written by Melissa Matheson. And she was also an associate producer for E.T. as well. And E.T. was the big one for her as well. She's done the screenplay for two... Well, she for prior to E.T., she did screenplay for two movies. Black Beauty and The Escape Artist. But it was E.T. that was the one that really solidified her spot in movie history. And that's despite the fact of only having 12 writing credits. Um, she wrote for a segment on the Twilight Twilight Zone, the movie. She wrote one segment for that. She wrote for The Indian in the Cupboard, Ponyo, and the BFG. And uh, for about 20 years of her life, she was married to Harrison Ford uh, between 1983 and 2004. Sadly, though, she passed away in 2015 at the age of 65. Um, something to note, though. Unlike some of the past movies I've been recently talking about where there was like a ton of rewrites and all this other stuff, the script that she brought to this movie only had two minor rewrites. Um, Steven Spielberg himself went on the record as saying that her script, her screenplay, was basically perfect in its inception that is pretty noteworthy because especially like some of these movies we see today i mean the rewrites and the the reshoots and all that other stuff when when she presented her her story to steven spielberg he felt it was perfect right from the get-go that's that's saying a lot and that's some big words coming from a man like steven spielberg as well Cinematography was done by Alan DeBow. I think I'm saying his last name right, DeBow. Um, he worked quite a bit with Steven as well. Uh, he was in. A, uh, he did a lot of films, including Harry and the Hendersons, which was one of the few films that Spielberg was uncredited for. He was a producer on it, but he didn't actually get credit for it. Um, Alan also worked on the music video for the Meatloaf song, Objects in the Rearview Mirror May Appear Closer Than They Are. Damn you, Meatloaf, for always you freaking long titles but anyways um alan worked on that video and he worked on the video for a perfect circles judith um and other films that he worked on he worked on congo bugsy the astronaut's wife and van helsing but he did pass away in 2020 i'm going to put this out there right now a lot of the names that were attached to this movie are no longer with us um, not in terms so much of the actors, but a lot of the creative department, the, the special effects and the writers, cinematographers, stuff like A lot of these people passed away. The next one being the creator of the E.T. Alien. I know I, I sort of did this a little bit differently. I added a few extra names because there's some important names that need to be mentioned here. Uh, E.T. itself, the idea, the concept what he would look like, how he would work, and everything, was created by a special effects wizard by the name of Carlo Rambaldi. Um, and he worked on, like, a ton of great movies that I didn't even realize growing up. He was in so many movies that I enjoyed as a kid. I mean, we're talking Bloody Pit of Horror, Barbarella, A Bay of Blood, Flesh for Frankenstein, Blood for Dracula, Deep Red, uh, King Kong in 1976. He constructed and engineered Kong himself. And he did Alien in 1979. He did the effects for the alien head. Uh, we're talking the movie The Hand from 1981 with... Um... Oh, and I can see his face too, and I can't think of it. 
Now move on because I'll get stumped. I uh, worked on the movie Possession, uh, Conan the Destroyer, Dune, Silver Bullet, King Kong Lives, Primal Rage. Um, uh, it's gonna bother me. Who's in? Michael Caine was in the, the hand. That's the name I was thinking of. I'm like, it was bothering me, and I knew. <laughs> had to say it it was like who was it i remember michael king um carlo uh passed away in 2012 at the age of 86 but left behind a huge body of work um legendary and i mean the et creation that he came up with is like it it became so iconic and it was just worth mentioning same with the spaceship design that spaceship in this movie is very iconic as well. And it was designed by a man by the name of Ralph McQuarrie. You might know that name if you know a bit of the history of the Star Wars films, obviously. he I, I will say he did the poster work for The Legend of Boggy Creek and The Town That Dreaded Sundown, the originals. But it's his concept work that he did for the original trilogy of the Star Wars films that most people will put Ralph's name to. Um, he also did conceptual illustrations for like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Boggy Creek 2, Cocoon, and Clive Barker's Nightbreed. He came up with a lot of the concepts for the monsters and whatnot, so that's pretty cool. He also passed away in 2012, but he was at the age of 82. Now, music composed by john williams and i will say 90 years old and still holding strong thankfully um john honestly might be one of the most successful and famous composers of our time it needs to be said it needs to be said uh his composing credits go back as far as 1958 but some of his best best work the best of the best come from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I mean, it started off with Tom Sawyer in 1973, and then he would he did the Sugarland Express, moving on to Towering Inferno, and then obviously Jaws. You, Jaws, such an iconic score. Star Wars, and pretty much every sequel that ever followed, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Superman, and its sequels as well. But that's Superman theme. Might be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, superhero theme songs ever. I know. Danny Elfman's Batman really rivals that. But, I mean, it's between those two. They are probably two of the most iconic superhero themes ever. And he's behind one of those two. Dracula in 1979. Worked on that. Indiana Jones and all the sequels for that. Um... Space Camp, it's a good movie. Hopefully you've seen it. Uh, <laughs> the Witches of Eastwick, Eastwick sorry. Um, Empire of the Sun, Born on the Fourth of July, Home Alone. And I believe he did the sequel as well, if I remember correctly. Um, Hook, JFK, Jurassic Park, Nixon, Sleepers, Saving Private Ryan, Harry Potter, the first three films, War of the Worlds, and here's a little bit of trivia for you did you also know that he did music for 20 episodes of the tv series gilligan's island it's also worth noting this is just how talented and amazing this composer is 
for the 20th anniversary re-release of E.T., he conducted a full orchestra to play the music in sync with the screening of the movie live. And there's a really cool, uh, it's about maybe a 20-minute documentary on the Blu-ray that it it shows the behind the scenes and then it shows you like what it was like when the movie was being played on the screen and his music play, like he's conducting the orchestra as the movie's going on. And it, it's really cool to listen to him talk about like how, how all the timing had to be perfect. If the timing was not perfect, it, he could have screwed up the whole movie in like a snap of a finger. And all all the work they had to put into it and everything. It's really, really awesome to watch. And I do believe that at the time he did that, I believe it was the first time it had ever been done. Aside from like the days of like, you know, silent films and whatnot. Um, I know Danny Elfman has done it with Nightmare Before Christmas. I know they have done that as well. Uh, I don't know of too many other films that have done it, but... To my knowledge, at least in the current era of the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, John Williams was one of the, might be the, the the very first to do it to a film that also had special effects and dialogue and all that other stuff. Like I said, in in the 1920s and, or the 19-teens and whatnot, they were doing it for silent films, but there's nothing to match it up with. If you're off a little bit, nobody would be the wiser. Moving on to our starring cast, let's talk about this film's uh, cast. I I kept it very minimal because there is a lot still to talk about with this movie. So let's get right into it. Let's talk about Dee Wallace. Oh, yes. She is a horror veteran. In this movie, she plays Mary. Mary Taylor. Uh, she's a single mother to Elliot, Michael, and Gertie. Um... We do see quite a bit of her. She's probably one of the more prominent adults we see in this movie. This movie does focus a lot on the kids. But she's she's one we see a little bit more prominently and whatnot. Um, as I said, she's a horror veteran. So pretty much every movie I picked that I was going to talk about is from the horror genre. She was in The Hills Have Eyes, uh, the original. She was in Cujo. Excellent performance in Cujo. Uh, the Howling, Critters, Popcorn, which I just talked about when I was talking about Joe Bob and whatnot, um, Alligator 2, The Frighteners, Rob Zombie's Halloween, love it or hate it, she was in it, um, The House of the Devil, The Lords of Salem, Red Christmas, Critters Attack, Three from Hell, and she has an off-screen cameo in Rob Zombie's latest film, The Munsters. And like I said, a horror veteran. So it's, but she was also known as like the mom figured a lot. Uh, that That's happened a lot in her career as well. And I mean, some of those movies I mentioned, uh, specifically Cujo, she plays, uh, you know, a mother in that as well. She was really good at playing the mom figure. Uh, moving on to Henry Thomas as Elliot, Elliot Taylor, whatever. Um, he's the 10 year old boy who befriends E.T., and he, uh, so right after he did E.T., he did another movie that in my childhood, I absolutely loved. I do have it on DVD, a movie called Cloak and Dagger. He was, uh, he co-starred with Dabney Coleman in which he's sort of playing sort of the same kind of character. Cause he has this imaginary friend 
that he sees that is like he's like um uh like a former army vet who like you know he he cracks cases and stuff like that anyways and it deals with an atari game um this game that has like this hidden chip and it's all this mystery and espionage stuff that goes on in the movie and whatnot so it's kind of funny that it's linked to both atari and you know it obviously et with henry thomas but he's playing like that kid that has that imaginary friend in this it's not imaginary friend it's an alien but he thinks if he tries to tell anyone nobody would believe him so they would think it's an imaginary friend um so there's sort of similarities but anyways yeah there's a movie cloak and dagger he was in he was in psycho four he was in fire in the sky legends of the fall suicide kings gangs of new york don't look up gerald's game and then recently he's been keeping himself really busy in a few series like um Oh, I don't know, the the Haunting of Hill House, Stargirl, The Haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Mass. He's going to be in the upcoming uh, The Fall of the House of the Usher. He was also in Doctor Sleep. Jeez, Mike Flanagan likes working with him. You notice this? Like, <laughs> they, have, they must have a very good working relationship. Um, interesting about this, though, uh, in terms of Henry playing Elliot, uh, his, initially his... Uh, he almost didn't get the role. Uh, as a matter of fact, Keith Coogan was considered even before he was. And then Henry had his first audition. It didn't go so well. Um, <laughs> they were they really were not happy with him. But uh, he he followed it up with another audition. This time it was an improvised one. And apparently he won the filmmakers over because he was able to produce tears like at the snap of a finger kind of thing. And they were like, okay, you got the role. So, but Keith Coogan, ugh, I don't know, I don't know how that would have looked. Um, but anyways, we'll move on to Peter Coyote as Keys. They his he's the scientist who has the jangling keys, so they call him Keys. But anyways, he's um, I guess it, he's credited sort of like as like a government agent who's trying to capture ET, but. The way they play it off, I like that they showed that he sort of had like a humanity, like a, a human side to him. Like he wasn't like, oh, I got to probe this alien with all a bunch of needles and stuff. Like he, it seemed like he genuinely did care. And I like that they did that. At the time when this came out, he was relatively a new actor. Uh, Peter hadn't done a whole lot, but he would go on to have a fine career in acting. He was in a lot of movies like Jagged Edge, Outrageous Fortune, um, Sphere, Patch Adams, Aaron Brockovich. And, well, then there's these two sequels. <laughs> he was in uh, Return of the Living Dead, the two last sequels. Which we're talking uh, Rave to the Grave and Necropolis. He played Uncle Charles in those movies. Yeah, some people like them. Obviously, there's an audience out there for those movies. For me, personally, I think Return of the Living Dead kind of stops at three, and that's where I was done with it. But he was in the fourth and fifth films in that franchise but we'll move on to robert mcnaughton as michael he's elliot and Gerder, gertie's older brother only 13 acting credits but one did stand out to me aside from et obviously uh, and that was he did a movie in 2015 called frankenstein versus the mummy and you're like okay that sounds pretty cool ah directed by damian leone who is the director responsible for this movie getting all the hype these days? 
Terrifier 2. So it's like, wow, I did not see that coming full circle, but it kind of did. Okay, Drew Barrymore, and I just recently talked about her not too long ago when I did the review for Firestarter, so I'm not going to focus a lot on her. Not because it's anything against Drew, because she's great in this movie, but it's because I just recently talked about her when I did the Firestarter review. So, anyways, she's Elliot and Michael's younger sister in here. Um, She was in movies like Altered States, uh, Cat's Eye, Babes in Toyland, Poison Ivy, Waxwork 2, Batman Forever. I love her in that movie. Um, (laughs) Scream, Titan AE, Donnie Darko. She's great in that. Uh, Santa Clarita Diet. And she was the voice of the principal in the newest Scream movie, uh, also known as Scream 5. But yeah, we we love Drew. You guys know when I talked about her on the Firestarter episode, like I, I love Drew Barrymore. I think she's a great actress and it's been nice to grow up knowing a world with Drew Barrymore in it. Let's move on to Casey Martell as Greg. He didn't do a lot of acting, but he did three that really stood out to me. One being the Amityville Horror in 1979. Then he was in Bloody Birthday in 1981. And then he played Eddie Munster in The Munster's Revenge. That also came out in 1981. Some people will crap on The Munster's Munster's Revenge, but it's not a horrible... It was a TV movie, so it is what it is. Um, Fred Gwynn, Yvonne DiCarlo, Al Davis, they were all in it. But he played uh, Eddie Munster in that. Now, let's move on to C. Thomas Howell as Tyler... 222 acting credits. He's a busy man. And it all started with E.T. That was a role that, in this role, by the way, of Tyler, almost went to Ralph Macchio. Hmm, I wonder how that would have looked. Anyways, he starts with E.T. C. Thomas Howell, that is. Uh, And right after that, he does The Outsiders. Following that, he was in Red Dawn. And then he went into movies like The Hitcher. Soul Man, A Tiger's Tale. And I mentioned A Tiger's Tale. Yeah, it's a stupid rom-com. But William Zabka was in that. That ties to Ralph Macchio. I love how the dots connect sometimes. (laughs) Um, In 2015, C. Thomas Howell was in Amazing Spider-Man. He was the voice of Professor Zoom in Justice League, The Flashpoint Paradox. He was also Captain Cold uh, in the game Injustice 2. He did Zoom again in Suicide Squad Hell to Pay. He was in three episodes of The Punisher as Carson Wolf. And I've actually talked about him on this show before, way back when, when I reviewed the movie Attack of the Killer Donuts. Yes, he was in that. A film from 2016 about killer donuts. Yes, he was in that as well. He's done a lot of work that I actually, you know, I I didn't realize it, but I'm like, I've seen a lot of his stuff. I mean, obviously, 222 acting credits. I haven't seen everything, but I've seen quite a bit of that. Okay, we got two credits left. Sean Fry as Steve. 13 acting credits. This was pretty much his biggest role. He did have a little bit of work on TV, but this was the big one for him. And then, okay. E.T., his voice, was done by, (laughs) actually, several different actors, non-actors. It's kind of weird. Technically, E.T.'s voice is credited to Pat Welsh. 
Uh, Pat Welsh apparently was known for smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, was a chronic, chronic smoker, had sort of a, a gruff voice, so they were able to use her voice to get what they wanted for E.T. But then Steven Spielberg also did some of the voicing. Caden uh, Green, Deborah Winger, uh, Ben Burt, who was the sound effects guy, like he was like the sound effects engineer. His wife had a cold, so he recorded her while she was sleeping. And that's part of E.T.'s voice. Uh, different animal noises. I saw something about like like raccoons and porcupines and stuff like that. Like they went all out. They grabbed from all these different things and mixed it all together in a pot and called it E.T.'s voice. So, but primary credits go to Pat Welsh. The runtime for E.T. is an hour and 55 minutes long. It was rated PG for language and mild thematic elements. The budget was $10.5 million. That's all they spent on this. Wait till you hear the box office gross on this one. $794.9 million to a budget of $10.5 million. Like, that is ludicrous. That's how well this movie did. And that's just what I got off the internet. Who knows how much more money it's made. It just released. They just released the movie um, on 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray disc um, for the 40th anniversary. So who knows how much money it's making off that right now. Like it, it will continue to make money. The synopsis for E.T. is pretty straightforward. I mean, you guys know this movie. The, even the review, like, there's a, a lot I had to, like, edit. and What am I going to talk about and what am I not? Because you guys know a lot of this stuff already. But anyways, the synopsis is, After a gentle alien becomes stranded on Earth, he is discovered and befriended by a 10-year-old boy named Elliot. Bringing him into his suburban California house, Elliot introduces E.T. to his brother Michael and his sister Gertie, and they decide to keep his existence a secret. Soon, however, he falls ill, resulting in government intervention and a dire situation for both him and Elliot. And this segment, I'm calling E.T. Phone Home. I know, I can't do the voice. (laughs) But hey, I tried. Um, so the whole idea for E.T., where this all stemmed from, where did Steven Spielberg get this idea from? Well, his parents divorced, I believe it was around 1960, and he had, in order to cope with the, 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 the stress of his parents divorcing and he felt very lonely, isolated and whatnot, he had this imaginary alien friend. Um, he basically looked at this imaginary friend as being like the brother he never had and the father he doesn't have anymore. Years later, in 1978, he announced he would do a film called Growing Up, but that was pushed aside for other commitments and never came to fruition. After filming Raiders of the Lost Ark, and again, from filming that, he started to experience feelings of loneliness. He was away from his loved ones and whatnot, and it brought him back to those years of when he had this imaginary friend. Enter Melissa Matheson, who basically Stephen tells her his story of his childhood, like how he has the imaginary friend and whatnot. And he also tells her about a subplot point from another failed project that was called Night Skies. 
Um, and Night Skies was apparently some movie that was thought up to be a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but it never happened. Anyways, in Night Skies, there was this alien named Buddy, and he was friendly. He had he, apparently he had befriended the autistic child of this family. Now, the other aliens in that film apparently were hostile and terrorized the family, but Buddy was the one that befriended the autistic child. And then, of course, because Buddy became friends with the child, the rest of the aliens abandoned him. And that was where Steven Spielberg got the idea for E.T., was the idea of an abandoned alien befriending a boy on Earth. So Melissa Matheson writes the initial draft of the screenplay, and she entitled it E.T. and Me. She wrote it in eight weeks. There were only two small rewrites, and... You know, Spielberg, like I said, like he felt it, it was practically perfect from the get go, but they did have two small little rewrites. And other than that, that was that Columbia Pictures had a chance to produce and distribute the project, but they passed on it. So MCA Universal struck a deal. They bought the rights and the movie was then became theirs. And that was that interesting thing about the screenplay. So the original screenplay was called E.T. and Me. This is sort of a personal story for me that's kind of funny. But E.T. affected me in a lot of ways. Like it was one of the movies that it's up there with Star Wars, um, Night of the Living Dead, Dracula. Like there are certain films that they hit me so hard. They literally became a part of my life. I think I was in the second grade and I wrote. It, it, we were we had this thing. It was called Young Authors of Canada. It was a contest that you know you, you wrote something, you made your little book, you illustrated it and whatnot. You handed it in. You either won or you didn't. I apparently placed, but I don't remember where. I think this is the second grade, and unfortunately, I don't have the book anymore because if you won or you placed, they kept the book. So yeehaw, never got it back. Lucky me. But anyways, the funny part about all that is, is that my book was called E.T. and Me. And it was <laughs> it was a stupid little book I wrote where it was that E.T. came back to Earth to find Elliot, but he couldn't. So he met me and we spent the day together. That was my stupid little book. I was in the second grade. <laughs> And it placed it. I don't think I won. I don't think it was that. But anyways, whatever's whatever. It just it made me laugh when I was doing my research and I found out that the original screenplay was called E.T. and me. And I'm like, dang, I I wrote a book called that. Um, I was in the second grade and it didn't mean anything, but whatever. But here's the thing. If you were around in 1982 and you remember it well, you'll remember that E.T. was phenomena it was something else especially with younger audiences but audiences of all ages honestly we all saw this thing in the theaters i know i saw it in the theaters i saw it in i think a drive-in as well actually <laughs> to be honest but i know i saw it in the theaters and there was something about this movie like it, it it was a movie that it made you smile it made you laugh made you cry it made you it it, it just it hit you so hard and then afterwards, we had what Spaceballs would call merchandising, merchandising, merchandising. I mean, we had the toys. We had the books, the stickers, the T-shirts, the lunchboxes, um, E.T. the flamethrower. The kids will love this one. No, I, actually, that didn't happen, at least not to my recollection. But who knows? 
Maybe it did. Um, but I mean, there was for me myself personally, like I had posters. I had there was the sticker book from Panini and you had to collect the stickers. I remember always going to the store and like buying like the sticker packs for like 15 cents and going home and seeing if I had the right stickers to complete the pictures and whatnot. Unfortunately, I don't have that anymore, but I, I remember that I had the scholastic storybook. I had figures. I had an ET figure. I had uh, a stuffed ET plushie, which I still have today. It's not the one I originally had. I found this one at a yard sale a good 25 years ago. And I've kept this one in perfect condition because the one I had before it ripped and got old and ratted looking and whatnot because I played with it every day. As a matter of fact, I don't remember what record is. I have a vinyl record from when I was a kid. I think it was one of the Disney ones I had. And I remember at Christmas time, I used to wrap up stuff that I had and I would gift it to my stuffed animals. I know I'm a weird kid. Trust me. I know it. Uh, pardon the expression. But, but anyways, um, I remember that in one of the records that I still have, it actually has written in the, in the top corner to ET because yes, I gifted something to my ET doll. Um, it was just, ET was one of those things. It was massive. I had the seven inch record actually. Now that I think about it, that came with the storybook and it was like, uh, play the record, read the book, see the pictures kind of thing and stuff like that. They had those. Those were a big thing back in the day. I had that. I don't have it anymore, but I wish I still did. I had that and I had Star Wars actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, and I even mentioned earlier, like E.T. the Atari game that I still have. Um, if it, it, as a kid growing up, it didn't matter if it was E.T. anything. We wanted it. If they had E.T. shoes, I would have worn them. Um, E.T., as a matter of fact, I think I did have an E.T. watch. Um, and then, of course, in terms of formats, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, yeah, I've got all of them as a matter of fact my blu-ray is the blu-ray that comes in the vhs shell it was like uh some like retro promotion or whatever i have that like et is just one of those things the soundtrack i have it on vinyl um the original like mca records release and what i et is just one of those things but what about the movie okay so i'm talking about all the merchandise and i'm talking about all the memories i have and whatnot what about the movie let's jump into the quick eight and number one, because I just mentioned the record, let's talk about the score. It's iconic. It's distinct. It's perfect. Really, honestly, it's a it's a perfect score. John Williams outdid himself with this one. There is no denying that this might be one of his best scores to date. I mean, it's up there. Let's put it that way. It is up there with Jaws. It is up there with Superman. It is up there with Star Wars. Okay, like, and those are themes. You hear them. It doesn't matter what you're doing, where you are, who you're with. Everyone knows those themes. When you hear E.T., when you hear the score, there's no denying it's from E.T. You just know it. We all see that scene of E.T. and Elliot flying over the woods. In the moonlit sky. I mean, Amblin uses it as their logo. But I mean, aside from that, which Amblin, by the way, was a, a, a movie that Stephen King, or Stephen King, Stephen Spielberg directed way back in his early days. That's where that comes from, if you're ever wondering. Um, it's kind of like George Lucas has THX. You know, he created the THX sounds, and it's from his movie THX 1138. Well, with Stephen Spielberg, Amblin was the same thing. Anyways, um, 
But you know that scene. We all have seen it. It's on the poster. We've seen it everywhere and whatnot. And you hear that iconic flying theme. And as a matter of fact, that's what the theme is called, flying. Um, it might be one of the most iconic scenes in any movie because of the visual and the audio in sync is one. Like, it's just, it's that, that's symbolic. It's that strong. Um, John Williams, by far, and he won awards for this score, and rightfully so. Like, it's just, it's that amazing. Point number two. The adults are bad and the kids are good. This was a theme back in the 80s. Sure, it's dated, but whatever. Um, In a way, (laughs) it's kind of funny because I understand it's a universal theme for all generations, honestly. But I think for many of us Gen Xers, like the whole, how do I word this? No to authority, you know, you wouldn't understand. These are phrases we all, we all knew them in the 80s, you know. If you if you know that we love something, you'll just try to take it away from us. This was some this movie has those themes in it. And it definitely hit a note with some of us, especially in the early eighties when uh when and especially in the eighties, everything seemed like it was so controlled or watered down to protect us. I mean, the eighties was the era of like the PMRC, we had the video nasties, we had so much trying to tell us what we could and couldn't do. Some more times what we couldn't do than as opposed to what we could. Um so I mean we had we had that to contend with and whatnot. So the whole idea that like the adults are bad in this and the kids are good was something that resonated with us kids in the eighties. And like I said, I realize it's universal for all generations, but Maybe that's even what makes this movie so timeless, but it just, for some reason, it really hit that note with us Gen Xers. (laughs) Not that I'm all into the whole generation thing and whatnot, but apparently I'm a Gen Xer, so I might as well live up to it, right? Point number three. Here's a fun one for you. The nod to Lucas's Star Wars movies, which in turn led to Lucas giving that nod right back to Steven Spielberg. And most of you probably heard about this now, but whatever. Anyways, in E.T., during the trick-or-treat sequence that I call it, um, you know, they're going out trick-or-treating, but actually it's so that Elliot and E.T. can go in the woods and set up his, you know, his little gadget that's going to phone home and whatnot. Anyways, we see that E.T. is dressed up as, um, he's dressed up as a ghost. And that's so that Gertie can be the ghost when they go home so that nobody knows, you know, they think mom won't know the wiser. Let's put it that way. Anyways, E.T. sees a child that's dressed up as Yoda. And for whatever reason back then, because we were like, what's going on here? But anyways, E.T. acknowledges the Yoda costumed kid thinking that it's someone he knows. And he, he even says something like home, home or something like almost like he totally recognized Yoda. And who would have known that years later in 1999, when George Lucas would make episode one, The Phantom Menace, we would see three ETs as part of the Galactic Senate. Now, I mean, granted, it was just supposed to be a nod back to Steven Spielberg. But for those of us who were fans, it was kind of like, oh, this is awesome. So E.T. is part of the Star Wars universe, which means that Star Wars could technically happen in our universe. It was like, it's just something. So it was just a throwaway moment, but it was, it was fun. Nonetheless, it makes it fun to just catch that little Easter egg and whatnot. But 
Um, I mean, and E.T. does a little bit more than just the Yoda costume. I mean, there's even one part where Henry Thomas as Elliot is, you know, talking about Greedo and Hammerhead and whatnot. It was cool that Steven Spielberg gave nods to George Lucas and the whole Star Wars franchise. And I mean, at that point, Return of the Jedi still hasn't even come out yet. So we have basically characters from A New Hope, which at the time wasn't even A New Hope. It was Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back being noted. So anyways, it's kind of a cool little nod how it goes back and forth like that. Point number four, while being a family-friendly film, there are still hints of fear and horror that are definitely present in this movie, especially in the second act when E.T. and Elliot become sick. And that is actually, when you think about it, it's almost like a home invasion. The whole intrusion scene, when the NASA officials and the policing authorities and whatnot are all approaching Elliot's house, they're basically breaking in. At one point, both on Halloween night and the following day, I should add, because first Halloween night, the kids are out trick-or-treating, mom's out to a party, and you got these guys. They're in the house, these scientists. They're, they're snooping around. They're trying to get traces of alien DNA and whatnot. Fine, I understand it, but it's still a home invasion nonetheless. And then the following day, Elliot has finally come home. His mother's freaked out. Cops say, okay, great. Got the kids home, this and that. And then Michael goes out, finds E.T., you know, out in the woods. He brings him back. And now you have Elliot and E.T. laying in a bathroom. They're both dying. Mom finally meets E.T. She freaks out. But the big scary scene comes when all those guys start just They're coming through the windows and the doors and they don't care. They're not knocking on the door. They're just walking in like, hey, we're going to intrude your home. We're going to invade you. Like, it's a scary scene. It really is, actually. It's very uncomfortable to watch. Um, And not to mention, as a kid, when you're a kid watching this, granted, I was, what, seven, eight years old when I saw this movie? Um, When you see... E.T. when he's sick and he's he's all white with decay and everything. That's nightmare fuel, man. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of spooky. Like, I mean, and I've, se- I've seen and I've heard some people that have said, like, E.T. scared them. Like, it's not technically a horror film, but some people were tormented by the idea of E.T. They thought he was a scary looking alien. And especially when he's sick. It's a, that can be terrifying. Um, it never scared me. But I will say that when he was sick and he was dying, it, it the idea of it freaked me out, especially because he has that, uh, like that link with Elliot. So what he feels, Elliot feels, and vice versa. That, I'm not going to lie. It, it was definitely unsettling. But for me, the real scary part was all the government officials just bombarding the house and there's no manners at all they're like we're coming in you're not stopping us and we're here to get the alien and it was like that's kind of scary point number five and i already sort of highlighted on this but i'm going to talk about it just a little bit more the filmmakers listening to the audience after the 20th anniversary this is something that's important to me because for the 20th anniversary, scenes were added, dialogue was altered, um, much like the special editions of Star Wars. Okay. I mean, E.T. was given a digital upgrade, 
We had the guns that the police were holding at the end when they're chasing the kids. The big chase scene, which is an awesome scene, by the way, in this movie. Stranger Things, yes, we know. You nodded to it. But anyways, when they re-released this in 2002, they took the guns out of the cops' hands and put walkie-talkies. And here's the thing. 2002, fans went into like they they saw this and they're like okay hold on a second first off this movie did not need to be tampered with it is a timeless classic you do not need to alter this secondly people were upset because they felt it was uh like too politically correct i mean the movie was something that it, it didn't offend anybody nobody was offended by watching this movie because the ending is the ending, and we all know that everyone is safe and happy. No kids got shot. The cops may all be holding guns. Not one of them shoots anybody. So what what are we offended by? So the fans, the media, they slam bass this slam base this thing. They're like, this is stupid. You did not need to do this. In October twenty October twenty second, two thousand two, it was released on DVD. The theatrical and the digital, like the the special edition, the the re-enhanced version. They were released together. In 2005, just the special edition was released. Fans were like, no, we don't want this. The media is like, you didn't need to do this. In 2011, Spielberg's interviewed and he says, well, okay, that enhanced version that I've done, that's gone. That's going away. And I will never re I will never enhance any of my movies again, because when people see a theatrical version, that's the part that's what they want to see. That's there is a, a, a connection to that. There's something that they feel when they see that they don't want to see a re-edited version after being in love with a theatrical version for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. So even with all the re-releases since 2005. You know, the 30th anniversary and the 40th anniversary, you know, additions and whatnot. It's only the original version we get now. The version I have on my Blu-ray is just the original. There's there's no there's no enhanced version. I do have the enhanced version, by the way. I did get it in 2002. It was the double, the double disc. There was apparently a triple disc as well. I didn't get that one. I got the double disc, has the original theatrical and the enhanced version. I keep it so I have the enhanced version because that is now out of print and it's not coming back. So it's nice to have, but they listened. That may, that means a lot to fans. You, you you know, and you might sit there and think, oh, well, whatever. You know, remakes and, and sequels and whatnot, well, they can't take away my originals. But in the case of Star Wars, they did. We can't get that original version on Blu-ray unless we take to the internet and go the illegal route. So the fact that Steven Spielberg and Universal listened and said, okay, we know what you want. We're giving it to you from now on. Kudos on them. This movie gets bonus points just for that alone. Point number six, the acting. And I'm specifically going to highlight the kids, but the acting in this is natural. It feels real. Nothing feels forced or out of place. And all three kids, Elliot, Michael, and Gertie, they all act and react naturally. I I never feel like I'm watching something that is like, you know, when you watch a low budget movie, right? And you know, you're like, okay, they're reading lines. I can tell, 
or this person really doesn't have the talent to pull off this role, but they got cast, so they're just doing it. Or whatever. You don't get any of that with this. The, the kids feel real. They feel natural. They produce real tears for their scenes. Like, And I mean, you get choked up watching it because you, you know that they're really crying. Like, They were able to do that. These kids weren't just acting those roles. They were living them. And even 40 years later, I just watched this two nights ago because preparing for the podcast and whatnot. And I believe that these kids are believing what they see. And they're exacting, they're exacting, they're acting exactly how I think these kids would act. Like, it's a very, very solid performance by all three kids that even 40 years later still works. It's still timeless. Point number seven, E.T. E.T. himself. E.T. the creation, the design, the movements. Feels very real. And it's interesting because they did digitally enhance E.T. 20 years later. And it was so unnecessary. Like, because the thing is, is that with this movie, even, okay, yes, E.T. is animatronic. I believe they had, for some of the movements, they did have, like, um, there was a two-foot-tall actor. And then for some of the some of the scenes, there was... Um, there was a 12-year-old boy who was actually used in some of the scenes, but he he had no legs. He, his legs had been amputated or whatever. So they he did some of the scenes as well. But for the most part, E.T. was animatronic. But it didn't really feel like it. Like, when you watch this movie, you feel like that alien is real. And even if, if something feels dated in this film, it's one of those movies where, like, you forget give it before it's even committed the sin because the movie is just too damn endearing to not overlook the small flaws like like when you really think about it like it's just it the story the story is so solid that okay yeah et's not real but i already know that so i love that they went practical with this like bringing in the digital effects almost ruined this movie And it's, again, kudos to them for listening and just saying, you know what? From this point on, we're releasing the theatrical version because that's what people want. In terms of E.T., though, like Carlo Rambaldi, his creation is perfect. What I love about it, this might not make sense to you. I don't know. It makes sense to me. Anyways, the alien for me is human enough that I feel like I can connect with it, but at the same time, it's alien enough for me to know that he's, he's not of this world. If that, if you know what I mean, like has eyes, has fingers, has feet. So we can relate to that. But at the same time, he's got like a weird shaped head and his neck can go really long and really short and stuff like that. And it's very cool how they were able to do that. Like the creative process on ET was, I would have liked to have been in the rooms. Let's put it that way to just see that creative process taking place and whatnot. Point number eight. This is a big one. This is what makes the movie hit on pretty much all cylinders. 
and that is the themes. The themes in this in the story, the themes of friendship, of loyalty and love. And you're like, he's supposed to be talking about a Halloween movie. Yes, I know. <laughs> but this is a movie that hits home. And even now, in 2022, it's still trying to teach the lesson. The theme of acceptance, to look past others' differences, whether it be environmental, appearance, language, origin of residency. Um, This was a movie that in 1982 had something to say, and it was saying, stop judging. You know, just hold out a friendly hand. You know, we can look past our diversity and see each other as one. And I know it, it, it sounds almost too poetic. It sounds almost too crazy, but... We see these characters, we see E.T., we see Elliot, we see two completely different individuals who all, like, they put aside their differences, they become closer to each other, there's a bond, they become family to each other, you know, and it's, it's a bond that they will never forget, ever in their lifetimes, ever, you know, the whole, I'm, I will be right here, and, you know, pointing at the heart, pointing at the mind, Yes, like it's it's a movie that has heart and soul. Like and I think it it, it was interesting cuz when I rewatched it for this movie, like or for this movie, this podcast episode, I'm looking at this movie like from 2022 perspective in a world where it's constantly shoved in our faces, down our throats, how we're all different and how we should display our differences. Be proud. Let the world know how different we are through our hashtags, our algorithms, our media, our politics. And I think back then to 1982 and I take this movie and this was a movie that was showing that being different was okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but still try to teach like treat Treat is the word I meant to say, not teach. Uh, try to treat each other as one and the same. It's like a, it, it, as a universal language. You know what I mean? Like, and there's so much going on in this movie without it, with it, without it seeming complex as well. Like, I mean, you have the idea of feeling alone, the, the, the loneliness, both ET and Elliot feel that, you know, Mary, Elliot's mother, you know, she's, feeling abandonment right now since her husband left and also has the burden of raising the kids, you know, by herself solo, you know, feeling almost helpless. And that's especially when there's that whole home invasion scene. Mary could not possibly feel any more helpless. Like it's like, I have my kids in my arms. I'm trying to protect them. And these people are just bombarding my house. They put plastic all over the house and everything. For this alien, but this alien at the same time, she sees it. She sees that E.T. came into her son's life. Her son doesn't feel alone anymore. He feels like he has a friend and she sees that. And it's like, so in a way, it's almost like E.T.'s helping her. You know what I mean? Um, I, 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 like I said before, and I'll say it again, I do appreciate that they show that the scientists generally are trying to help. I mean, we know, we all know what the government's like. They see some new toy to play with. They want to poke and prod at it. We know, but at least for this movie, they showed that once they realized that the alien might not make it, they had to try and save its life. I did appreciate the movie for that, whether how how realistic it is. Well, who knows who cares? I like that it's in the story. I like that Steven Spielberg put a casting call out to actual real doctors to play the roles for that. 
it was a good call on his part because like he says he knew there was a lot of terminology that if he tried to get an actor to remember it and say it properly they might not so everything we see in those scenes is exactly how it would happen in you know an emergency room so that's pretty cool but getting back to the whole themes it's very interesting because I, I watched the the documentary from twenty like two thousand two when it was the twentieth anniversary, and they were talking about how the themes were so relevant still twenty years later. How you know people needed to learn to come together and stop being so separated and so angry and so segregated and whatnot. And I'm watching this movie forty years later and thinking we still haven't learned this lesson. We still haven't figured it out because we're still playing into the hand that's being dealt. Um, IMDb has this at a 7.9 out of 10, and I feel it's a bloody robbery Um, (laughs) because everything else is like through the roof. Like even Roger Ebert. Okay, Roger Ebert, a man who generally hates almost everything I love, gave this movie four out of four stars. Rotten Tomatoes has it at a 99% certified fresh rating rotten tomatoes normally i'm like you know scowling at them for their ratings 99 percent fresh this movie has won well over 30 awards including four oscars oscar i think it was nominated for nine and won four of them like i mean this movie is just generally loved the podcast zero rating for this movie is like this this movie is timeless even at my age of 47 years old this still hits me right in the heartstrings makes me smile makes me laugh makes me feel it's a movie that can be watched any other day of the year yeah easily i know but it's always been a halloween movie for me um not a horror flick obviously there's this scary elements but it's not a horror film but it's definitely a halloween movie movie has a word I have not used yet that I'm going to use for it now. The movie has a magic to it. It's a wonderful feeling watching this movie. In the plainest way I can say it. Um, this is... Uh, how do I word this? This is one of those reasons why the art of motion picture needs to exist. Because this movie is magic. And I know you're thinking, okay, Paul, but I'm serious. This movie is just... that. It's a perfect 10. I'm not going to bury the lead anymore. It's a perfect 10. It's a masterpiece. Am I being biased? Well, maybe. Um, But this is, without a doubt, this is the one film that my mind always goes to whenever I hear the name Steven Spielberg. Jaws is up there. I'm not saying it's not. (laughs) For anyone that knows me, they know I love the movie Jaws. But when you say Steven Spielberg, the first thing that pops into my head is E.T., First thing that pops into my head is seeing the bike with E.T. and Elliot flying across, you know, the, the, the backdrop of the moon. It, it's 10 out of 10 for me. It's a masterpiece. Absolutely a fave. And it's, like I said, it's the movie I think of first whenever someone says Steven Spielberg. And on that note, thanks for coming back. Thanks for listening. So many of you, so awesome. This past week, with something wicked this way comes, um, really cool that I had so many people that were talking with me about it, commenting, sharing. Um, it was it was very delightful for me. It's it's really cool 
through this podcast, I, I think I've actually become a little bit more of a humanitarian. No, but um, actually, it, it, I look forward to releasing the shows. And it's made October kind of easy for me because you guys do know this past year, it's been times where I struggled with getting episodes out. And this month, for whatever reason, it's like no sooner do I put an episode out, I'm like, I'm ready to go into the next one now. Like, <laughs> I'm already planning it. I'm already doing my, you know, uh, artwork for it. And uh, I'm writing notes and watching the movies and stuff. It's been a lot of fun this month. And a lot of that is because of you guys. Like, the, the, I see the numbers, but you know what? It's not even so much the numbers. It's just knowing that, like, when it's done, when you guys have listened to this, I'm I get feedback, and that's been really cool. Um, I should mention, just so that if any if it ever happens, I am not the greatest at replying right away. Sometimes I take a bit. Please understand that it's not that I won't reply. Just sometimes it takes me a bit. I am sort of a cluster expletive deleted i think i let that word slip once already but anyways um kind of that guy it it takes me a bit but i will get to it just so you guys know um because i know that many of you follow me on the different forms of social media whether it be facebook instagram or twitter um and I just, I, I don't want people to think, oh, he's ignoring me or something. And no, I'm not. I, I swear on my life, I'm not. Uh, just want to get that out there. But yeah, I, it was, the past week was really cool. Um, you guys do know you can email me as well. I do check emails daily. So what lurks behind podcast zero at gmail.com. As for the next episode, before I get into the extra segment of the week, the the um what are we calling that the the post credit scene <laughs> uh, where I talk about Terrifier two before we get into that next episode is I'm not telling you <laughs> it's a Halloween surprise will be released on the day of how I might hmm, do I release it on the Sunday I could release it on Devil's Night I might. Um, but more than likely it'll be early Monday morning. It will get released unless I release it on the Sunday. Depends on if I'm watching football and if the bears are doing good against Dallas because, Hey, way to go bears kicking new England's, um, Heine. We'll call it that. Yeah. That was awesome. I totally did not expect that coming. <laughs> it was like, wait, what? The bears actually look like a team. Oh, I was so happy. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I know they can. It just, it seemed like every week there was something wrong with this team. And I'm like, oh, they're never going to get it. Tonight, they look like a full team. We're talking special teams. We're talking offense. We're talking defense. And I know you don't care to hear about football, but I'm happy. And I recorded this literally a couple hours after that game was done. And just preparing for the episode tonight and I had like an extra kick to my step because it was like the Bears actually looked really good on a weekend when the Packers and the Lions both lost and the Vikings didn't play yeehaw thank you Uh, (laughs) anyways that's that next up the post credit scene okay so if you've hung around this long obviously you're waiting to hear about Terrifier 2 
I have seen this movie now. And I'm not going to lie. So the internet had me intrigued. Yeah, had me wondering. Was this movie actually that bad? Was it faint-inducing? Was it going to make me gag? Was it going to make me puke? Was it going to make me cry? None of the above. Um, (laughs) Here's the thing. I think I, I really had to question coming out of this movie. It was like, okay, what movie did people think they were going to see? I, I have to wonder that because did you not see the first one? The first one, especially with the hacksaw scene, a girl gets cut right in half. And while not extremely graphic, graphic enough, you know what I mean? Like how, how, how is Damien Leone going to top that? And just seeing the stuff on the internet about, you know, people fainting and crying and whatnot. I'm like, did he really top that scene? Cause that is a tough one to beat. And after watching it, I'm like, I don't know. Like what's the worst thing that these people saw before seeing this? Like the Smurfs, the Binky, the clown show. Like, I don't know. Like first off, I, I think the thing is, is when I think terrify her and I, I, I look at the appearance of art, the clown. Okay. Or even a glimpse of the trailer. Whether it be the trailer from Terrifier or the trailer from Terrifier 2. You should have somewhat of an idea what you're getting into. This is not for the squeamish. So when I see these comments online, I'm like, okay. What was the what was the bar you had set prior to walking into this? Now, I will say, in regards to Terrifier 2, it's not my favorite movie of the year. But I will say it's definitely in that top five. <laughs> it's pretty good. I don't know. I, the sadness really took it for me this year. And I think that's going to be a real tough one to top. And that's the thing. The sadness, in my opinion, was more graphic than this. That's not to say this movie's not graphic. I won't spoil a whole lot of the gore aspects. Because I think I, I, I kind of want you guys to experience it and be like, <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? But... It is a violent movie. There's lots of blood. I'm not sure that there's as much blood used as there was in, say, like Evil Dead 2 or Dead Alive. But I'm willing to believe that they did use a few buckets for this thing. Um, Wink, wink. Uh, If you get what I'm saying. like, And there's some gore. There is definitely a gory movie. I'm not saying it's not. But I have seen worse. And that's... That's the thing. And I will say that in terms of a movie affecting me to the point where like it literally messed with me after the movie was done, I still think to this day Martyrs from 2007 holds that title. That one stuck with me for quite a while after. Uh, Terrifier 2. The the thing about Terrifier 2 was I walked away from it happy. I was kind of giddy. Um, had a good time with the movie. Yeah, it's it's, it's depraved. <laughs> it's pretty brutal. Um, for those of you who... I'm going to put this out there now. I'm not spoiling a lot, but there will be terminology I might use that spoil a bit. There's a bedroom scene. I'll just say that. That one... I... Yeah, it, it pushed some limits. It pushed some bars. <laughs> but... Still, I think I've seen worse. The thing is, is that 
I don't want to say a whole lot about this movie because if you were a fan of the first few films, whether it be All Hallows Eve or the first Terrifier, and I mean, obviously, All Hallows Eve had, you know, from the short films, The Ninth Circle, and the Terrifier short film. If you followed Art the Clown for a while, you definitely want to see this movie because you know what you're getting into, okay? You, you're going to get that obscene amount of gore. Like, it's you're going to get that. Um the reason I wanted to leave this as the last segment was also because in case I did talk about a few scenes, I I I wanted to allow listeners the option to stop after hearing the whole rest of the show. Um, but I, I do want to keep it as spoiler-free as possible. I will say this. Okay, first off, the score by Paul Wiley is great. Uh, the pacing is really good. And the acting is top-notch. And I will highlight on the pacing. Here's the thing. This movie is two hours and 20 minutes long. It is not a short film. I mean, it's not a long film either. It's not Justice League. But still, my thing is, is that that, uh, uh, going into this movie, a lot of people were like uh, two hours and 20 minutes of depravity, like, or depravity, sorry. Um, Is it necessary? Well, here's the thing about this. So the acting I mentioned top notch. David Howard Thornton, he's amazing as Art the Clown. I can't wait to see him play the Grinch. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. Great actor. Elliot Fulham. Little punk people. The little guy. The brother. He's great in this. Very believable. The acting, again, for for a low-budget film that was basically funded by Kickstarter, the acting was mind-blowing. Lauren Levera as Sienna steals the show. She is amazing in this. Absolutely awesome. And there is one scene that she's in. I won't spoil what happens. But there is a scene with her, Art, and her brother. A little boy. A little boy. He's a teenager, but whatever. Here's the thing. She does something in this scene that... uh, is I haven't seen this in a long time in a movie where we depict a hero in the way they did with her. And you're like, okay, well we have superhero movies all over the place. Yes. That's the problem. All these superhero films, the superheroes are enhanced. They have super serum in their blood, or they have these, you know, great suits that have Kevlar in them, or they came from Themyscira, or they came from an, another world or something. They're uh, they're outer-worldly. We are talking about a girl, a teenage girl, who does something so heroic in this one scene that I, I had chills. I had goosebumps on my arms. I was like, and no dialogue needed. It's just the actions that take place. And I was like, that is amazing. And that's the thing about this movie. Now, I go into slashers all the time. <laughs> I'm always, I'm that guy. I'm like, I want to see kids get killed. I mean, that, that's why I watch slashers. Okay, that's why I watch Jason. That's why I watch Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger. I want to see the creative kills. This movie flipped those tables on me and actually had me rooting for the protagonist for once. I was I was feeling for them. I wanted Sienna and her brother to live. I wanted them to be successful against Art the Clown. 
sure, I love the clown. But I actually, pardon the expression, I gave a about these characters. Like, I cared about them. And the movie deserves kudos for that. Because that doesn't happen in Friday the 13th or Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street. That's why these movies are an hour, an hour and a half long. Or sometimes even under that. You get some of these movies that are 80 minutes long. Why? Because we don't care about the characters. We just want to see the creative deaths. The reason why Terrifier 2 is 2 hours and 20 minutes is because we gave you character development. We, we gave you Sienna and we fleshed her character out. We fleshed her brother's character out. We fleshed her mother's character out. Fleshed her friends out a little bit. We, we made you actually feel like you knew these people. Or if, maybe if you didn't know them, you felt for them. And we gave you some more backstory on Art the Clown. And, and albeit said, it's still confusing. <laughs> um, I'm not going to lie. There, there's some things that I walked away from this movie. That's why I said it's not my favorite movie of the year. There are a few things that I'm still scratching my head going, is there something I missed? <laughs> but aside from a few confusing moments, I mean, this movie was a hell of a ride. It was a lot of fun. And I mean, that's the other thing too. Like if people are actually grossed out by this movie... You might be, well, you definitely weren't the person this movie was made for, but you might also want to, like, remember there's this thing called practical special effects where, like, you know, if they're smashing in someone's face, the good odds of it being a cherry pie that they're actually punching, you know what I mean? Like, there's a, there's some effects in this movie that are really well done. And there are other ones that you can tell. It was a Kickstarter movie. It was a movie that Damien Leone, like, he had the crowd. It was crowdfunded. It was for the fans. This movie, and that's the thing too. This is something that I, I'm starting to see happen more, and I'm actually very happy about it, is movies that are meant for a specific audience. Let's stop always trying to get as many butts in the seats as possible. You know what? They will get there if you make the movie you meant to make. Stop trying to generalize everything or, or weaken it down so that, oh, well, Timmy and Bobby and Susie and Gordon can all f go too. Like, no, you know what we want? We want a movie that was made for the hardcore fan, for the guy that's that's watched or the girl. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't discriminate here. Guys, girls or whoever. For those people that watched the original Terrifier, for what who watched all Hallows Eve. They knew what they were getting into. They know what Art the Clown is. They want that. They don't want you watering it down. And that that's what Damien Leone did. He said, hey, the fans that watch this, they want the gore. They want the effects. They want us to go over the top. He still has a line he won't cross. Kudos to him for that. But at the same time, he knows the gore hounds want the gore. And we're going to give it to you. And the thing is, is... This is not this is not a movie for those who, you know, they want to watch Clueless or, you know, Legally Blonde. No offense to Reese Witherspoon. But I'm just saying, or Elisa Silverstone. But I'm just saying, like, the thing is, is that this was a movie made for the fans. And I'm seeing more of that, too. Like, and not just with horror films, but with superhero films. And when I make them for the fans. And you know what? When the fans are talking with their friends about these movies, that will bring in. It's the talk, right? Because that's what this movie is based, its success has been based on. There's a few tweets that we don't even know if it was actually, like, actually real. The one tweet has some guy saying that his best friend just fainted watching Terrifier 2, but conveniently the poster for Terrifier 2 is right above the guy's head. We don't really know that they were in that theater. 
That's what he says, but it's convenient placement for the poster as well. Maybe it was just his friend passed out because he was too drunk. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know. And I'm not, and I don't want to call the guy a liar either. Maybe his friend did see the movie. I don't know. I wasn't there. But what I will say this, that tweet, as much as I hate it for it, got me intrigued. I was, hmm. Is this movie as bad as they say it is? And in the the back of my mind, I'm also thinking, I've seen some pretty bad movies. (laughs) And there is also a certain line I won't cross. I've I've always said, and I will still say it to this day, a Serbian film is one film I will not watch. I don't care if it's shown or not. What what is implied in that film, I cannot take. I have my lines too. But when it came to Art the Clown, it was like, I know what I'm getting with this. This It's going to be over the top and silly. And it's going to be fun. And it's going to make me laugh, which it did. I laughed. I had a good time. I hoot and hollered. And I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, all those reactions. This movie gave me that. So best movie of the year? No. But definitely in my top five. It's an amazing flick. Needs to be seen. If you like your special effects or if you're a fan of the Art the Clown Killer, Please watch this movie, but be warned. These characters, they developed them. This was not a typical slasher. Not only did they go above and beyond with the gore, they also went above and beyond with the story. It made you like these characters. Something that a lot of slashers really don't do these days. And on that note, I'm going to sign off saying thank you for listening. And next week, 